how do I get to the next level? And a big part, as I mentioned earlier, was overcoming that self-doubt. And mm-hmm. it's, it really is continuous thing because mm-hmm. you know, getting negative thoughts, that's something that's always going to happen. But I now have the tools to be able to reframe and, and just create other n- narratives and scenarios that works for me other than mm-hmm. against me. And it's just recognizing that negative thoughts and limiting beliefs that pop up or just like clouds in the sky, they'll come over mm-hmm. and then they'll go away. It's from an evolutionary standpoint, it, it's helpful for survival for us to feel the worst. And, and we're all cavemen. And if a saber-toothed tiger is going to approach you and whatnot and jump you, like you got to always be alert. But the key really is to understand that these negative thoughts are just survival mechanism. Don't, don't have to pay attention to it and just focus on thoughts that empowers me instead. So it's really focusing on what can help empower me and just mm-hmm. letting the negative parts slide through. You're listening to The Big Asian Energy Show, where every week we interview Asian experts, move makers, and ceiling breakers to uncover their secrets to success so we can help you reach your greatest potential. I'm your host, John Wang. Let's dive in. Welcome to Big Asian Energy. I'm here today with rock star Danny Zhang, a super good friend of mine and the co-founder of Syllable, an award-winning architectural and interior design firm in Canada, which has not only won awards, but actually, as a matter of fact, Danny has also served the judge for, I think it's the Canadian Interiors Magazine's Best of Canada Awards. And he's built an incredible business over the last few years, 10Xing his business over just the last five. And today he's here to share his journey, his stories, as well as how he came to become this rock star. And not to mention, probably one of the best looking entrepreneurs I've ever met. You have the most epic hair, by the way. Thank you, John. Go Google this guy if you haven't seen him yet. Like, he looks like he just walked off of a runway. Right back at you. Right back at you, John. You're making me blush. (laughs) That was an epic intro, but definitely could not have done it without my business partner, Tatiana, and my team. So it's really been a wild ride. Yeah, it's all, teamwork is huge. Yeah. As I always start with the starting point, Danny, my first question is always, where are you from? So I'm from Taiwan. I immigrated with my family to, yeah, I know you yeah, went to uh, yeah. Vancouver <laughs> when I was nine and then it was in Vancouver until I finished my undergrad and then went to Toronto to do my master's and I've been here ever since. Nice. And so when did you come here from Taiwan? Was it when you were a kid or were you born? Yeah. yeah. So when I was nine, I was in grade two at the time and I wish I stayed a bit longer because I can speak no problem and I can read. But the thing is writing is a totally different thing. And in a way, I wish I stayed a bit longer prior to immigrating so I can really get that writing aspect now. Got it. And what was it like for you growing up in Canada? In Canada, I would say the first few years was definitely a culture shock and like being a new kid and not knowing the language well. And I was also chubbier at the time. It was difficult to adjust. Whereas I was like king of the block when I was in Taiwan. I was leader of gang of kids running around in the back alleys and just causing trouble in the neighborhood. And it's very dense over there. Like in Taiwan, there's streets just packed in next to each other. And then coming to Vancouver, whereas it's very sparse and like larger houses and not so it was a bit of a culture shock for me right. at first so you started a gang when you were in taiwan didn't you yes in the sandbox <laughs> we terrorized the sandbox collected tariffs and all of that yeah but i know what you're talking about like my background i was born in taipei and yeah like taipei is like a super dense very like heavily congested city even when i was growing up in the 80s and yeah like coming here to vancouver which year did you first move over here 92 
92. <laughs> yeah. So you're Even basically major. around the same time frame. <laughs> around the same time frame. Yeah. Like Vancouver was a lot of farmland back then. Like I grew up in mm -hmm. Richmond, which is those, if you're in Vancouver, it's like a very Asian neighborhood now. But back when I was first here, there were practically no Asian people and the city was like farmland. So mm -hmm. what was that experience like for you being one of the earlier Asian immigrants coming to Canada? It was very sparse. And what it made me do was like at the time when I came, didn't have much friends, didn't really know the language well. So I retreated inwards. In a sense, I became more introverted. I just buried myself in books and just stayed in my room the majority of the time. So it was a big change for me going from someone who's always running around in densely packed neighborhoods to a more sparse environment where I'm kind of alone in my own you mentioned the word culture shock. Was the culture shock just coming from a major city into a, I would say, a less densely populated area or was there any other culture shock for you as well? Yeah, that's part of it. And the other part is Vancouver, where I came from, also had a lot of Asian kids as well. And then mm. there was a small group of Taiwanese people there that also spoke the same language, but in a way, they really connect with them that well. What was surprising to me was there were also Asians that spoke English like, fluently that do not know their uh, other Mandarin or Cantonese. So that to me was like, well, wait, <laughs> there's other Asians that don't speak Asian languages. Yeah. So there's, yeah. So growing up here, there was always two types of Asians, right? There were like exactly. the CBC Asians or the AB Asians. Yeah. And then the fobs. So which type did you feel like you were closer to at the time? At the time, I didn't feel fully fought, but I always definitely was not CBC. So growing up, I was always in the in-between. Even when I first came over and like as a true fob, the place I went to, there weren't other true fobs at the time until I got to grade six or so when were more like fobs from like who immigrated when they were grade six or so, but like those were the true fobs. And uh, so I never felt like I truly belonged being in that in-between not quite CBC and not quite fob. So there was a third category there. Exactly. <laughs> and I feel like, yeah, yeah, you would probably fall in that category with me. That's the sense that I'm getting. How about you? What were you categorizing yourself as? Oh, man, I went through like an identity crisis when I was in high school and I just kept bouncing back and forth in between. So I went through a fob phase and I went through like a white people phase. So in the beginning, I was just like, I was just Asian. There was no subcategories. And then suddenly there was this influx of other Asian people from Hong Kong, from Taiwan, from China, all over the place, Singapore, suddenly started flooding our schools. And I think I just didn't know where I belonged. Yeah. I spoke Chinese, I spoke Mandarin, but I didn't really have that same association to a lot of like music or culture they like until about, I think 10th grade was when I suddenly went through this, like it wasn't an Asian pride, it was called like AZN pride. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I remember that. And you feel like, you got to stylize the capitalization somewhere in small caps, somewhere in large caps. Yeah, that's right. Capitalize A, like minimize like Z. <laughs> and then yeah, yeah. N. No, yeah, that was when I discovered like Asian Avenue. I was when I, 90s. Oh, the classic. Yeah, that was the classic 90s. And then I started going to like, karaoke with friends and going to Chinese mm -hmm. restaurant. That's when I like had a whole group of fob friends. And I didn't always know how to get along with them. They spoke Cantonese sometimes, which I didn't speak because they're from Hong Kong. They spoke Chinese and the things that they were interested in were just different. So I would say, yeah, like I probably bounced back and forth in between and was trying to figure out where I wanted to belong. Yeah, I can totally relate. It was definitely an identity crisis for me as well. There wasn't a set group that I felt like I actually belonged to. That to me, like always made me feel like a drifter, at least when I was growing up. Yeah. So when you were saying you were bouncing back in between, did you end up finding a home? Finding a home in terms of groups or Yeah, in friends. terms of yeah, your, so your group? Honestly, not until I really came to Toronto and just where I had to start from scratch. That's at that point where I had the 
opportunity to say, okay, let's make something out of this. Because in a way, yeah, I felt a drifter when I was in Vancouver because I felt like a lot of it was built up already. And so when I moved to Toronto, it made me feel like I have a blank slate to work with. And mm. that's where I realized that I can rewrite my own story here. You moved to Toronto after graduating, is that right? After I finished my master's, yeah. After so you finished your master's, right? I mean, what I was doing my master's. So I finished my bachelor's and then I came to Toronto for my master's. Got it. You did your master's in architecture? Yeah, did that in architecture. I, I had a degree in fine arts with some art history background and bachelor's. I know, totally random. And, uh, <laughs> it made me appreciate the notion of seeing history through the lens of art and maybe able to think critically about certain issues and abstractly also. What was that experience like going into? Did you always know you wanted to go into architecture or like you always had a plan to go into architecture? I always knew it's going to be something design related because my uncle was a developer in Taiwan, like a small developer at my hometown. So growing up, I would see the architectural models that he has on site. And that always fascinated me. So that left an imprint in me. And growing up playing Legos, I, I never followed the instructions. I would just pick up whatever was in the pile of Legos and just create something from scratch. So I love doing that. So growing up, I always knew that it would be something design related. And when it came to choosing a major, I figured I could get, because either way, if I wanted to get into architecture, I would need a bachelor's degree. So I figured I'd choose something that's more fun and allows me to get a portfolio as well as a degree. So hence the fine arts. That sounds great. Did your parents always support that decision for you? They were very supportive in general. Yeah. And luckily, because a lot of Asians are like, oh, you must go to, you must go to <laughs> yeah. like accounting, be engineer or doctor, that kind of thing. So I was very fortunate in the sense that they didn't really push me in that certain category or force me. And like, quite frankly, I also wasn't the best student in high school either. And so I think they were just happy and glad that I got into to a university in general. So they had an idea that you were going to go into architecture and they largely supported it, especially after what happened. What were your grades like in high school? My grades in high school were, I was covered in the B plus A minus range. So not A plus material. Which is not terrible. Expect, but yeah, yeah which <laughs> one would accept. But for Asian, that's like an Asian that's fail. An Asian fail. <laughs> it's an Asian fail. So it's an Asian it's, fail. I think one of my students once sent me a meme and it said, we are called Asians, not Bijans. <laughs> that's absolutely it. But in university, I did get better grades afterwards. But yeah, I was definitely in the Bijan category. <laughs> that's great. And so you went to architecture school, having always, you went to fine, fine arts, which in and of itself is not super common, I think, for a lot of, I think, Asian Americans. But yes, you went to architecture and you found a new identity when you're in Toronto. What was that like? So I would say what that was like was after I finished my architecture degree, you hear all these things about how you make your best friends in like school. And yeah. after that, you're pretty much done so. And then I remember really sulking in one time. Oh no, like I don't have my friends. And I didn't really cultivate as much meaningful connections as possible. And just went into a hole of self-pity. And there was just one moment where I recall very, very clearly, I was downloading a game called Second Life. And I downloaded that game because I didn't really have a life. So I figured at least my avatar virtual reality would. So as I was downloading it, I was watching the installation bar. So I live in a condo and then I have a pretty good view of downtown. And I'm seeing all these speckles of lights in the exterior. And each one of them represents a unit with a life that's unique, full of vibrancy. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to be out there. So I looked mm -hmm. back at the installation bar and it's now at 98%. So I click cancel and then I kick the door open of my 
apartment open so hard it hasn't closed since then. That night, I uh, <laughs> oh, no. signed up to for as much networking events as possible, and I learned as much as possible about human interactions, how to build rapport, things like that, and just started to apply that. And then almost on a as often as I could. And there was I remember one year, 2013, I was literally out every single day, and、mm-hmm. so to the point where I was casting a wide social net, and eventually、I、started seeing the people that I gravitate to, like-minded individuals, and started collecting a lot of good friends that were also into self-growth and personal development. And that's where I realized that the people that I gravitate towards are those that are into. Self growth as well, and is looking、mm-hmm. to fulfill their vision in a way that they could, and、mm-hmm. that's where I started gathering, cultivating, and creating my own social circle out of that. So, to anyone that reads and articles about how you make your best friends in school, and after that, it's really difficult. All you really have to do is make the efforts. Like it can be done, and it can be done. Rule and you can achieve your wildest dreams out of that. That's pretty impressive because I know a lot of people who struggle with just even approaching a single stranger and starting a conversation. I, I think there's a lot of social anxiety in a lot of people who, especially coming out of school, right? That's where that stereotype comes from. As you meet、mm-hmm. your closest friends there, because as you say, after you leave school, people just don't take the chance to cross into another person's world because one is not super awkward, and two, it's super scary to do. Were you always this? Charming and charismatic and social, or did you learn that as a skill? First of all, thank you.、And、right back at you, John. <laughs> I was always really awkward, and was definitely something that I cultivated. But it wasn't like that because when I was in Taiwan, as I mentioned, I was the, the leader of troublemakers, <laughs> the mafia leader.、Uh, exactly, exactly. So I knew that I had it in me, somewhere in me, like it was there. There's a good documentary about Joseph Campbell called Finding Joe, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And the the documentary opens up about a Buddha within the village that was made out. Of gold, and there was a neighboring village that had a more powerful army and more aggressors, so to say. So they sent an envoy signaling that they were going to attack, and all of the people within the village with the gold Buddha panicked, and then they just started slapping that Buddha with mud <clears throat> in hopes that when the aggressive village comes over, they wouldn't take that Buddha, melt it down, and just、right. distribute the gold. Years went by, the, the attackers went away afterwards, and they seen the mud Buddha. Didn't really pay attention to it, but generations went by, and people within that village forgotten that Buddha was made out of solid gold. Until one day, later on, the mud started tripping away, and they, a monk noticed that. Oh, wait a second! There's something behind this, and they uncovered the gold Buddha to his former glory too, and repolished it back. So I think that's a metaphor for all of us. We were born golden, and a lot of times we take in a lot of negative programming that's slapped onto us. And to the point where we've covered up all the best parts about ourselves, and we end up forgetting it. So that that was the story that really stuck with me. And I think it's a metaphor for a lot of people that go through transformation. So it's not so much about being yourself; it's about finding the best parts of yourself and amplifying it, even if it means scrapping all the mud away. I love that story. Oh, I'm getting like I'm getting chills just hearing that. <laughs> I so agree with that. That the idea that like really we talk about personal transformation work or personal growth work, but the truth behind Is that it's so much of it isn't just about learning the skill、mm-hmm. to become, let's say, more confident or more social or more successful. It's actually about unlearning the unlearning the bad habits, unlearning the bad mindsets. Or I'm using the word bad here in the, with in quotations, but unlearning the mindsets that don't really support us anymore. What would you say, using that same metaphor for a lot of people that you see, or even for yourself and your story and journey, that mud would have been? What were those things that have covered up, and how did we get covered up in it? And then how do we get rid、mm-hmm. of that so we can find、yeah. our golden self? 
yourself. Oh, for sure. And I would love to hear your perspective on this as well. So for me, as I thought about it and thinking in context of this podcast, so there's a Chinese fable, a very famous one called Kong Zhong Zandi, which is uh, mm-hmm. Kong Zhong giving mm-hmm. up the pair. And it goes in the Han Dynasty of China, there was a scholar named Kong Zhong and he retells a incident that happened when he was a child. So when he was about four, year, four years old or so, his father, a very important man, came home one day with a pack of really large, delicious pears. So Kong Zhong has five older brothers and a younger brother. And since six is a lucky number and he's the sixth child, he was favored the most. I'm sure there were other reasons, but anyway, so his father was like, here, Kong Zhong, here's the biggest pair. So Kong Zhong looks at it and then puts it down and picks up the smallest one. And then he's saying that, oh, my brother should have the larger ones. So mm-hmm. his dad, very curiously said, Kong Zhong, why did you give away the largest pair that, and instead chose the smallest? And he said, my five eldest brothers, they're older and then more worthy of respect. So they should have the larger ones. So his dad's very curious. You have a younger brother too. Why don't you have the second biggest one? <laughs> and he said, as the older brother to the younger brother, I have to take care of him. So he should have the larger one. So I think this notion of humility and respect for your elders is really something that is tied in into Asian identity to the fact that a story and simple fable like that that happened centuries ago is still rings in the head of a Taiwanese immigrant in the 21st century. <laughs> so that's pretty huge. So there's the notion of humility and others over yourself and then respect for your elders and also listening to them. So growing up, my grandparents would always tell me that I have to respect your elders. And this is prevalent across all Asian cultures. There's the notion of respecting elders. Like in school, there's even terms like shuidi, etc. That defines, so, yeah, like people in a higher grade be more worthy of respect. So yeah, there is a certain respect for your elders, even people who are a year above you. Growing up, hearing what my grandparents tell me that I have to respect my elders, what they have to see as right. And so with that mindset, I went out to the world and being the new kid on the block, I have a lot of older kids call me a loser. So I've internalized that shit. Oh, I'm a loser. If these like older kids who are like more worthy of respect is telling me that, then maybe I'm a loser and I'm not worthy of what I want. So that was a negative programming that instilled in me. And it was something that I would have to overcome eventually. And this wasn't something that I knew about until I actually dug into it. Like learn more about psychology and how we have some of these self-limiting beliefs because it goes deep to young programming in, in, and informative years. And for me, like when I identify that, I was able to understand it. And then that was a big thing for me to overcome that barrier. So were, yourself, did you have, were you always this confident, charismatic? And, oh, uh, dude, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> First and foremost, thank you. That's very kind. Yeah, no, I definitely felt that for me learning, you know, social skills, it's learned. It's a muscle. For that matter, mm-hmm. same thing for confidence. Confidence is also a muscle. As in confidence, when you really break it down, there, there's this, it's essentially a sense of fearlessness, right? In the same way that we don't really think about confidence because usually the real power behind confidence is for me, it's comfort. It's just ease at being mm-hmm. comfortable with who you are, being comfortable in exactly. your own skin in all these various situations. So in the same way that comfort is really the removal of discomfort, how do you describe someone who's comfortable is you're not doing anything that's uncomfortable. Heck, even why is lying down so comfortable? Because you're not fighting against gravity, right? Just as comfort is really about the absence of discomfort, really, I see confidence as being the absence of fear and mm-hmm. or ability to 
see the fear or feel the fear and go, okay, thanks for letting me know fear that this is something that I'm dealing with and I don't need it right now. And I think that takes practice, but absolutely, I love the story that you just shared. Uh, I also grew up with that story and I hadn't even thought of it for years until you just brought it up. And it's so true. I remember my parents bought me this whole set of these like ancient Chinese children's stories. Oh Bam! yeah. Oh, I had that too. Yeah, those too? And like all the idioms, like all the yeah, idioms. All the idioms. They're all like these kind of like four word sayings in Chinese or in Taiwanese. Or, and it was all based around stories of selflessness. It was such a core <laughs> element. Yeah. It was stories of, you know, how like this guy would put on clown makeup and baby clothes to amuse his parents. And, you know, how stories of people who would give up their entire life to help them or how this like really amazing mom moved three times to help her kid get a better education. And they're all noble stories with really good values. Like, of course, selflessness is a good value. Of course, mm -hmm. respecting one another, regardless of their age, is a good value. But we don't really think about how when we're only inundated with that and we moralize that. And what I mean by moralize is when we turn that into you are bad if you don't. You are mm -hmm. bad if you don't, you are mm -hmm. good if you do, is that we start creating guilt. We start creating mm -hmm. guilt anytime Absolutely. we are in a position of where we're taking rightful credit. And I see this so much with so many mm -hmm. Asian Americans and it drives me up the wall, which is they take that almost to a point of too far. Because the beauty of it is that kindness was always supposed to be a good value, right? Like it's kindness to want to mm -hmm. give the biggest pair to your brother. It's kindness Absolutely. to want to take care of the people around you. But we've turned it into guilt and fear of mm -hmm. that if I ever tried to take the pair that's been given to me and it is a bigger pair, then I'm a bad person. If I ever ask for recognition, if I ever allow anybody to see me as I truly am, like in your golden Buddha, story is that it's shameful. And I think that's where we have the opportunity to definitely look at that and mm -hmm. say, does this actually make sense? Who am I really benefiting from this? And does it make sense for me mm -hmm. to keep self-sacrificing and putting myself last? And sure, that's sure. the struggle. Oh, for sure. I, I think what you said is so key. And uh, some of the things that I hear and I haven't experienced myself thank God, is the notion of the bamboo ceiling. Like they say that in my organization, it's really hard for me to move up and so forth. But look at the way they communicate and also just ask me a few questions. There's a whole notion that's been instilled. So as a young age, learning these stories and learning these idioms about it's virtuous to be selfless, to give recognition to others mm -hmm. and not shine light on yourself and be in the background. That doesn't work in the corporate world. It doesn't work when you're trying to climb the corporate ladder, ask for a raise, ask for a promotion, get a better job work or a better salary because it's innately from a generational thing. We're taught that being humble is a virtue and mm -hmm. boasting about your achievements and so forth is something that is a no-no. It's mm -hmm. something that a boastful person does, which is frowned upon. So that kind of notion, I think, it turns out as a behavioral thing. Totally. And it creates this negative cycle, right? So when we talk about the bamboo ceiling, I always see it as there's two parts of it. There is a systemic issue, which is racism. It's plain and simple, there is racism. And it makes people super uncomfortable when I point out that systemic discrimination by definition is racism. Even if they don't view it as such, there was actually just today there was a new study that was just published essentially talking about the kind of racism that we start to look at as invisible racism mm -hmm. and when people are shut down for job opportunities and i found this particularly case a lot of times for example asian women who speak up for themselves are seen as crass or they're seen as too outspoken and it's so common on so many different employer evaluations where you'll see asian women get this particular phrasing as too outspoken and when you think about it it's ridiculous what does that even mean 
mean too outspoken and but yeah, we're talking. yeah like, it's not a good thing wouldn't you opinionated want like shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. you want someone that is able to express useful information exactly and when we look at that and we're like i wonder how many so this is always a tricky topic but i really wonder if there's statistically ever been any research done other racial groups other minority or majority groups for that matter and whether they get the same thing as when someone speaks up do they all get listed as being too outspoken when they point out an issue so it's an issue because i'm a really big believer in be outspoken mm -hmm. i'm a really big believer that if we want to change this the internal bamboo ceiling has to break so that we can break the we oh, need yeah. more asian people to step up and to be outspoken and embrace their outspokenness and cause a scene cause a ruckus right i think what you said about the internal bamboo ceiling is so key because a lot of this is internalized and through a behavioral elements and you cause this element to perpetuate in terms of the outspokenness what you mentioned about asian women who are opinionated and calm confidence being branded as that. I think there's a stereotype around Asians being meek and being cordial all the time. So when they are not that, it is a bit of a shock because it's a prevailing stereotype. They yeah. shouldn't do that. Yeah. But yeah, I would, I would also say that in, in a corporate world, if they're uncomfortable with it, there's perhaps they're threatened by it. Like they're not used to or a powerful, and it, it could just be women in general. And women face this a lot in the workspace when they are confident, outspoken and so forth. They're and it starts young too. Girls in the schoolyard being called bossy. One could say that they're demonstrating good leadership abilities by being able to command, but being seen as bossy. It's this prevailing stereotype out there that isn't isn't necessarily beneficial to all. But it creates a cycle because exactly because they if they hear or see somebody else being told that because it comes down to the, the contrast principle. If we're expecting mm -hmm. Asians. Oftentimes, there, there was a study done by, I think it was one of the one of the major organizations, I think I want to call it a send or something. And they found that the three biggest adjectives that the vast majority of Americans use when describing agents is smart, always, right? It's always hardworking and polite. But when they asked about, do you see Asian Americans as being in leadership? That number drops during the 40%. It's such a curious thing because, and I think this is the core of the bamboo ceiling, what a major issue that we run into is that we keep seeing this perpetuated cycle where because we are seen as being smart, polite, and quiet, and meek, and all these things we talked about, therefore we feel guilty when we do speak up. And when we speak up, we see that look, I don't know if you've experienced this. I've heard this from so many, I would say I call powerful Asians because they take their power, they own their power is that mm. there's this discomfort in their peers where they go, we weren't expecting that. Like, we're not comfortable with you breaking out of this mold that we put you in. Coming back to your story, first and foremost, you obviously, we talked about this, you learned a lot of these social skills and the confidence, this building up this muscle. Did this show up for you in your career since you started your own business? What was the last sentence you said um, and would tie into this as well? I agree, like, they don't expect it. They don't expect yeah. us to have a louder voice to have good vocal projection. <laughs> we are the unexpected, powerful Asian. <laughs> but it's great. Right, because it's, it's oh my god it's the unexpected right and in a way and i would like more agents to harness this as well yeah. being able to project your voice powerfully being able to cut through noise and and so forth because they it's expected there's a stereotype that agents are meek and quiet when you're not all of a sudden it's whoa yeah so it's like under promising and over delivering at the same time <laughs> yeah. so by by virtue you're already they already think you're meek and quiet but if you show up in a more powerful manner all of a sudden yeah. it's unexpected and they're like yeah. whoa what this guy 
guy yeah. about. So I think I've never seen it as a negative thing. No. I've always seen it as no. I've always seen it as how can I use these prevailing stereotypes as and use it to my advantage. So it's the unexpected. Like for instance, when I was out networking, they all expect Asians to just turn red and tap out after a few drinks. But no, there's a lot of Asians that can out drink anyone under the table. Dude, have you, yeah. <laughs> Dude, have you have done you... business in Melbourne and Asia <laughs> in every single night? Have you seen Japanese businessmen who pass on the oh street? Oh my God. After, and they do it every single week. I, I don't remember this time I ever went drinking with a, a group of my Korean friends and getting out drank under the table by like the tiniest like little Asian, this little Korean girl who like, I was just like, yeah, I'm tapping oh, out yeah. before you yeah. could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. So this is something I really want to capture because this stereotype of this quiet, meek, the subtle Asian, as I say it, the subtle Asian doesn't make any sense to me because Asian people are not subtle. They are not quiet. If you go to Asia, if you've yeah, ever well, gone to, to watch two Asian people fight over a restaurant bill, you will not call them meek or quiet. <laughs> Traditionally speaking, historically speaking, we have a very powerful culture. So why do you think, in your own observations, why do you think we, we are seen this way? I think I was watching a documentary about how Asian American Chinese food was mm -hmm. found. And it goes mm -hmm. all the way back to like the building of the railroads in like mm -hmm. the late 1800s or so. And so Chinese workers were, were immigrated and they were cheaper and willing to take the hardest jobs. And of course, they didn't speak the language. And at that time, they were all confined to a specific quarter. They were all confined to live in a certain area. They weren't even allowed to vote until, I can't remember the year, but it was possibly the 1960s or something. This is where we have to fact check and, <laughs> and edit. But yeah, it was later on. And I think there's the notion there where one, they weren't allowed to vote and being in a free country from that point it's taking a fundamental right that the country was founded upon and mm -hmm. this goes to the united states for especially and also the fact that asians when they first came over to to work on the railroads they were harder working because it's instilled in asian culture just to work for the good of the nation good yeah. of the state etc yeah. yeah. it's instilled in them whereas the whole idea of empire building, like when you're at a height of privilege, the, the people within the empire become more entitled. Whereas mm. the immigrants were there wanting to make something out of themselves. So they were just putting their head down, going to work. So there's a notion, one, that they did not speak the language, so they congregated within themselves. And then two, because then they put their head down and just continue to work. So it, it's a deep instilled belief that Asians just quietly do the work and then mm. uh, don't complain. I think from, the, from a historical perspective, it's from that. So the early, the early immigrants <clears throat> were always segregated to the side, right? Yeah. This is why when people talk about how there's little racism against Asian people, I just find it to be utterly hilarious because it's like, it, it pick up a basic history book, you know, the Chinese Exclusionary Act, Japanese internment camps, like it's a mm -hmm. very rich part of our history. Yeah, not absolutely. even talk about what was going on during the Korean War, not even talking about how a lot of like Indian people are treated, Pakistani people are treated, all these kind of mixtures of racism that's like just get very quietly, ah, it doesn't really count. That's not mm -hmm. really the same. Yeah, it was a different time. Like it's just so easily cast aside, but it did. It had a massive, I would say, identity imprint on a lot of immigrants growing up because that gets passed down, right? That, oh, that sure. gets passed down from society to society, generation to generation. Right? Yeah. And it gets passed down because the parents take on a certain behavior when yeah. they're put in that position, like the segregation and so forth. And the beliefs that you have to put your head down, don't ruffle any feathers and so forth. And I also think it's the notion of being humble, mm -hmm. not talking about your own achievements, because that mm -hmm. can seem as you're meek and quiet by not speaking 
and uh, whereas what the Western culture sees individualization and speaking about like, your achievements, like one of the reasons why reality TV shows are so popular is because you have these people that just need a lot of attention, self-promote self to the extreme. It's entertaining to watch because that's what's North American value, individuality, aggression, and mm -hmm. uniqueness. Whereas in a lot of Asian cultures, it's virtuous to be humble. It's virtuous to mm -hmm. think more about others by giving them more recognition and in view of your own, mm -hmm. kind of like the whole letting pair story. So that's something I think is prevailing both as a cultural element, mm -hmm. also as something that's observed. And like kids growing up, they really see it and then they take it in and they model it. So mm. the lack really of representation exactly. because the media, they don't want to promote because mm. again, it's the same thing. It's like when they're seeing a model that they're used to, it's like when somebody with the energy level of seven comes in and they step up to an eight, we see that mm. as leadership. Mm. We see that as that movie climax moment of the big mm. hero who gives a speech in front of everyone who let's go yeah. and oh, fight against yeah. baddies. But when mm. you see somebody who you've positioned to be at the energy level of four, who's always kind of sat quietly in the background, did the calculations, he's the mm. analyst, right? Mm. He's the calculator, suddenly come up and he steps into the pedal of power of the seven. We go, whoa, that's too much, man. You're gonna hurt yourself up there. Like we immediately go into that mode. So it doesn't get promoted. It doesn't get perpetuated. We don't see it in media. Mm -hmm. Even to this day, the character of an Asian male lead is so incredibly rare. Even to this day <laughs> that we're seeing. I mean, oh yeah, we finally have our first Asian superhero. And to point out that even in that situation, you'll notice that the storyline behind it is that he is, yes, he is an Asian superhero, but he also still follows a lot of the same stereotypes. It's still mm -hmm. a martial artist, right? Yep. The story of him overcoming is still like he's allowed to be a hero within certain contexts and, and that's within martial arts within a very asian kind of environment so yeah you're allowed to be the leader of asians <laughs> you're allowed to be the superhero of asians so that's the subtlety behind that message i'm not like the yeah, intention it's... is not to go into the full societal analysis <laughs> the rabbit hole yeah but, oh man but no representation is totally key and mm -hmm. especially for asian americans if growing up in a country where everyone's speaking english and mm -hmm. what they see on tv they mm -hmm. only see like white superheroes white people saving the day giving that big speech like you're saying and like mm -hmm. why aren't there any people that look like us and the ones that do are like you said the ones doing the calculation in the back and then handing it to the person giving the speech so it's something that's going back to modeling something they see early on oh yeah my kind of people just isn't that type and it recreates that and how what was your experience like as an entrepreneur as a business starter and, and as a job maker you have teams you lead teams you, your firm wins awards and is a leader in the architectural space what was that well, been like I, for you it's i've never like i in a sense i've never really paid attention to any of the stereotypes like the whole notion of bamboo ceiling as i mentioned i haven't experienced it myself like i haven't lost a job because of the color of my skin and mm -hmm. if i would get projects because of the color of my skin like why not but yeah i think i just focus on the actions on the behavior like how do i serve my clients better how do i create a space that fulfills their needs how do i understand their problems better so i can solve it for them and so that kind of thing and in the business development context i've always used these prevailing stereotypes to my advantage like the mm -hmm. given the unexpected and mm. like for me i've never paid any attention to any of those things because uh, for me i believe that as you said like when we're comfortable in our own skin when we're confident 
and what we have to, to, to deliver. It doesn't really matter the color of your skin. How did you become so confident and how did you become comfortable in your own skin as a leader in that situation? I think for me, it was always about how do I get to the next level? And a big part, as I mentioned earlier, was overcoming that self-doubt. And it really is a continuous thing because getting negative thoughts, that's something that's always going to happen. But now have the tools to be able to reframe and just create other narratives and scenarios that works for me other than mm -hmm. against me. And it's just recognizing that negative thoughts and limiting beliefs that pop up or just like clouds in the sky. They'll come over and then they'll go away. It's from an evolutionary standpoint. It's helpful for survival for us to feel the worst because and we're all cavemen and if a saber-toothed tiger is going to approach you and whatnot and jump you, you've got to always be alert. But that doesn't work in today's context. We're in the urban jungle, yes, and there are sharks in form of sleazy people that's going to try to rip you off. But, 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 the, yeah. but the, exactly, exactly. But the key really is to understand that these negative thoughts are a survival mechanism. You have to pay attention to it and just focus on thoughts that empowers me instead. So it's really focusing on what can help empower me and just mm. letting the negative parts slide through. And mm. there are days where I'll fall into a negative down spiral as well, mm. but that's just the case. And I've given myself permission to say, okay, I'm okay to feel shitty sometimes. I just mm. need to get up the next day. So you mentioned a few tools in how you deal with overcoming your self-doubt and the negative thoughts and the negative thought patterns. Early on, you used the word reframing, and I would love to dive a little bit more on that. But I like that. I like this idea that when a thought comes up, we could recognize that, okay, it's part of my mm -hmm. biology that I have to try to imagine that there are tigers, but there might not be any actual tigers. And just letting the thoughts come and go, observing that. But it's not always easy to do. Sometimes mm -hmm. when I get a negative thought that comes up, like it would linger with me for hours. Like that fear, especially imagine that I'm trying to give a presentation in front of a big group of people. Mm -hmm. Like I'm trying to get a deal. I'm trying to get a contract signed or something like that. That's a scary thought. And I would love to just say, oh, it's not a big deal. But then it'll come up. My brain would go, but it is. If you screw this up, you won't be homeless and oh, nobody yeah. will love you. And <laughs> yeah, one shot, John, one shot. You mess it up. You, <laughs> yeah, you bring shame to your entire client. So how do you overcome that? So for me, it's meditation. When I get into a negative thought spiral and I can stay in there for as long as I could, it's possible. It could be days, but I find that meditation really helps, but also going deeper in the feeling. So the negative feeling that I have, for instance, like what I pointed out earlier, it's something like I screw something up. And then for instance, if I sent out a document with a typo and then I sent it out and then I catch myself sending it, I'm like, oh shit, I'm a loser. I don't check stuff. I'm not a professional. And then it's really just sitting with it and then acknowledging the feeling. The key is acknowledging that feel like yes it's a bad situation acknowledge it and then just really feel it in my body and then i let it go that's right. it and that's actually how you process trauma as well people go to therapists they talk therapists gets people to talk and go into parts of their past and traumatic events that they don't want to mm -hmm. and then they extract the feeling that they're trying to avoid and the, the key is to bring that feeling to light sit with it in your body and then just acknowledge it really acknowledge that it existed and you were hurt and it's okay and then you and once it's the body acknowledges the pain and the trauma, it also allows you to heal. Mm -hmm. So like a quick exercise I like to do is I'll close my eyes and if I'm feeling really bad or shitty about something, I'll acknowledge that feeling and then I'll ask myself, why am I feeling this way? And then another question I ask is go a bit deeper. 
what is the root cause of it? And then every single layer you get into and you unravel it, the problem that sounds that seems insurmountable and huge gets diminished smaller and smaller. So just a recap, it sounds like what you're saying is as these kind of thoughts that come up, these self doubts, these I'm not good enough, these what if I screw it all up kind of thoughts come up to let us sit for us to take a look at it and to let it come up. And it's actually possible, vocalize it, talk about it, possibly to somebody who cares about you, a friend or a family member who you feel safe with, you can like say, this is what I'm feeling, that's what I'm experiencing. And then I like the way you say it, which is step a little bit deeper, go a little bit deeper into mm -hmm. that and then ask, is this true? Is this actually going to happen? There's yeah. a great psychologist. Her name is Byron Katie. She has a book, actually a series of books. One of them is Loving What Is. And she talks about this concept of the four questions in which she talks about the work. Mm -hmm. I think one of the first questions is, is this true? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's such a simple oh, good. Good. It's such a simple, basic question because a lot of times we don't even start there. We don't even start with something as simple as going, is this thought true? And then the second question goes, can I absolutely know that is true? Because sometimes when we go to the first question, when you say, is this true? Our first mind automatically goes, yes, it's true. Well, can you actually know that's true? Oh, if I screw this up, then, you know, everyone's going to hate me and I'm going to lose my job. Is this true? Yes, it's true. Can you absolutely know that it's true? And then that's when you start realizing maybe not everyone's going to hate me and maybe I'm not actually going to lose my job from it. And then she goes off deeper and then she goes to say, question number three is how do you react? What happens when you believe this thought? I think observing your actual experience when we go through that, mm -hmm. we imagine that imaginary tiger that's going to attack us when we don't actually know. And we start to notice the little internal cause and effect. Like when we believe this thought, we can go into panic. We can go into anxiety. We can go into like fear. And in that situation, if you believe this thought, I might end up doing poorer on the presentation. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and question four is then, who would you be without this thought? And I found this is actually personally, I found it when I was doing my work, I found this to be the hardest question to answer, but especially when dealing with somebody else, with another person, a Larian psychology book, which is that all, all problems are interpersonal problems is always dealing with other people. So when you imagine mm -hmm. that you're in the presence of this thought and this other person, your audience or your boss who is there, if you didn't have the ability to even think of this at all, like it just doesn't exist in your world, your life might actually become a lot easier, mm -hmm. might speak more confidently and then allowing that question to fade away. Right. <laughs> so I, I saw the, a lot of parallel between what you were suggesting and her work. That's absolutely it. Like asking, is it true? It's all of a sudden, because in the negative scenario, we tend to overblow things out of proportions mm -hmm. and just asking that allows you to think critically, right. go in a bit deeper. That's great. Okay. Coming back to a business question. You mm -hmm. talked to me early on, you talked about how you 10 X your business in five years. How did you 10 X your business? In five years. That's insane by anybody's standard. So my business partner and I looked at it and then one day came up to me and realized like, hey daddy, we 10x our revenue since we first started this. And I was like, oh shit. And uh, it's funny, we started off doing small projects. There were smaller projects and then um, some are small as someone's garage or like someone like three bathrooms or so. And then uh, you mean when you first started the business, you started with yeah, like interior well, design and architectural design? We started working together in 2014 and then we were both working at other practices back then, a full-time job. And so we started work doing freelance projects. But then in 2017, we decided that we're both going to work on a full-time together. And uh, at first, the projects were smaller, like a small cafe, 400 square feet or so. And then and then things just got bigger and bigger. And part of it is we were doing good work, like clients were happy. And then also, it's all about solving the client's problems. They come to us with a specific problem to be solved. Like, how do we create a restaurant that can help kick us off? How do we create a office space that represents our brand and allows our employees 
to be more productive? And how do we create multi-unit community that's fresh and contextual to the environment, but still has that nice modern flair? So these are the questions and problems that we need to solve. And clients come to us for solutions. So we think about how the end users would use a specific space and how do we add values to their lives through our design, but it's also the experience as well. And this was something through trial and error that we really built up on because it's as other than getting to the solution, it's also the experience. We want it to be as smooth as, as possible and also taking into account the client's involvement as well. So we see them as collaborators in the sense that we would implement the ideas and really take into account of what they're saying. Mm. Through, project, through project management, communication is key. We started structuring meetings that allows us to have as much communication and dialogue as possible with the clients and make sure that we are on track with the schedule. Not every single project is on schedule due to things that can be out of our control, like the delays in constructions or city officials not getting back to us, people getting sick and so forth. But as long as clients are communicating on that aspect, they're happy because they understand the situation. We built a practice that's very experience, experiential based, taking account of the client experience as we go through it. Right. And then as we started building this, we realized that our fees were, weren't matching up to the level of quality that we're delivering. And a lot of it has to do with self-doubts and also limiting beliefs and being able what, to- What are to limiting beliefs? Are basically beliefs that limits you to where you want to go. Things that stunt you. Oh yeah, I'm not good enough. I don't deserve this and so forth. So when we take a look at the work that we've done and, and became mm. proud of it, we realized that, wait a second, we are good. And the work, the amount of work that we put into it is indicative of the price that we're charging. And in fact, the value that we bring is more so than that. So getting bigger and better projects every single year as we got along came with the one, solving problems well for our clients and two, making the experience going through it as smooth as possible. So I would say those are the two key ingredients that allowed us to 10x our business. When you were set talking about overcoming those limiting beliefs, and I think this is huge because it's a pretty common thing, right? Especially someone starting a new business. Like we all experience these self-doubts. You talked about how you started seeing your work as being of high quality. And I think externally, we can all see that. Like we can all see other people's strengths. But I think mm -hmm. a lot of, especially a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, experience a lot of Asian Americans I know are such perfectionists and they tend to undervalue their work. And it sounds like you had that as a limiting belief that you a little bit undervalued your work in the beginning when you were underpricing it. How did you overcome that mindset shift? At what point did you look at your own work and even if your overachiever status is still thinking that I could do better, suddenly go, you know what, this is actually really great. Like, how did you come to that? When clients were coming to us after they fired their previous designers or architects. <laughs> <laughs> telling us that what we're doing is better. So than, comparing than, yourselves to your competitors. And then we're like, wait a second. Okay, so that's one thing. And then right. it's, we're always improving. We're always mm -hmm. look at things and think about how we can implement. And mm -hmm. it's like always evolving. So that's more or less it. So turning around this kind of comparison mindset, which we all go through of trying to compare ourselves against people and feeling, oh, I could do more. I could do better. I'm not working hard enough. But actually recognizing our strengths in that comparison and seeing that actually, no, mm -hmm. this is objectively speaking, there's these values that I have that seems to be better. Oh yeah. It's recognizing the strengths, but also still being humble enough to say that we can do better. We're always evolving and this is a process. That's great. Thank you. That's super helpful. So I want to check in. Two big things is one, are there any kind of like fan favorite stories that you want to share that 
crowd pleaser stories that you've always had and how did I set that up for you? And two, the last question I always ask just before we finish is always what your advice would be to yourself when you were starting up in this journey, right? And that could mm. be in your 20s, that could be your mid 20s, whatever mm. that may be. First and foremost, yeah, is there like crowd pleaser stories that you want to share? I think the biggest crowd pleaser story was like when I started going out to network, that installing sim life, that's definitely a crowd pleaser oh, I love story. that story. Oh, that was such yeah. a good story that when you click down to the door, <laughs> that's great. And then that was so indicative. So I still have a photograph that I took. Please of the share that. that was, yeah. like, Please I still share have that. a photograph. I, I'll, I'll dig it up. It's okay. I have to find it, but I'll always remember that moment. And <laughs> I have to say a Sim Life 2, not Sim Life 1. Because Sim Life 2 just came out that year. I'm like, okay, I'm going to download a new one. Blah, blah, blah. And I was excited at first until I realized, oh shit, I could be staring at the screen or I could be out there. Right. There. Right. Real life. I, could, I could build this world or I could build the real world. Exactly. Yeah, that was actually a, I would say, my call to adventure, so to speak. Oh yeah, that's perfect. I love that. All right, cool. I'll make sure that we feature that story. I love it. But that being said though, I feel like that story was overblown. Yeah, like I've said that on too many podcasts. I think. <laughs> hey, it's, it's, it's an oldies, it's a classic. Nobody ever yeah, got no, tired of a uh, stairway to heaven. Sure. Yeah, maybe go through it and I trust your editing and I trust your content creation. So whatever you think works the best, like I'll be happy with. Yeah, sounds good. And okay, final question is, what advice would you give to yourself from the time that you first started this journey, especially if you were back in your early 20s and such? I would say the meditation technique that I told you about and also getting into the deep part of the trauma that was causing me to have these negative limiting beliefs. If yeah. I could give myself that kind of advice and extract it, I think from a behavioral thing that would solve a lot of problems. I did it externally first. Like I got good at networking. I got good at social skills. I was externally, but internally still felt like shit. So it wasn't until I, I dug deep internally and reconciled and felt those negative experiences. After that, I was able to truly heal and get to the next level. What would you tell a 21-year-old Danny right now what exactly should he be doing? 21-year-old Danny should eat that fucking big pear and just take a big bite into it <laughs> instead of letting other people have that fucking pear. That's what 21-year-old Danny should do. I eat love that it. fucking pear because you goddamn well deserve it. That's what I would tell That is a mic drop moment right there. I love it. Claim your worth, eat that pear, eat that fucking pear. Yeah, Love it. Pear, yeah. yeah. Eat all of them if you have to. Yeah, don't be afraid to claim your space. Don't be afraid to own your worth. Not in a braggadocious, ridiculous, over-the-top kind of way, but recognize the accomplishments you have and don't be afraid to claim it. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I love it. All right, beautiful. Thanks so much. <laughs> Dude, that was epic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And, and for embodying for all of us, your big Asian energy and for putting it out there. We definitely need way more neat leaders for eating those pears and not feeling guilty about the fact that it's okay to eat that pear because as you grow, we can also, then we can actually start giving back from a place of genuine kindness and love and not from a place of guilt and feeling like, oh, we don't deserve this. We absolutely do. Totally, awesome. Totally. All right, brother. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. As Asian Americans, we are as strong as our collective community. So if there's something that you found valuable in this episode, share it with a friend and tag us on social media. And if you like the show, leave us a review and send a screenshot and you might win some big Asian energy merch, which we give out every month so you can go out there and own your big Asian energy.